like us, dear listener, you're a bit overwhelmed by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. And our next sponsor has provided us with some very interesting facts that we would like to pass on to you. Fact number one. Teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for most of us, it's an off-white or a slightly yellowish undertone. Fact two, teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact number three. Tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch to. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is a device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky. They don't create a seal. Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for under $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is a custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head on over to smilebrilliant.com and use their lab direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you'd pay at the dentist. Oh, and um, if you grind your teeth at night, by the way, like me, Kemper, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards once again for a fraction of the price the dentists charge. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use special All About Agatha coupon code AGATHA, A-G-A-T-H-A, you know how it's spelled, for an exclusive All About Agatha discount. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And as we mentioned at the end of our last episode, this is a special episode. We were lucky enough to sit down with an author who we have met before. That would be Anthony Horowitz. And when we sat down with him the first time, we were primarily discussing his Susan Ryland series of murder mysteries. That would be Magpie Murders and Moonflower Murders. 
And in this episode, we are primarily discussing his other adult mystery series, which would be the Hawthorne series or the Horowitz and Hawthorne series, as some people call it. And we will get into exactly what that is in the interview that will start in just a moment. Um, Just real quick. For those who may not be aware, Anthony Horowitz is, of course, an extraordinarily accomplished author and screenwriter and producer. He does a lot, (laughs) and he's been doing a lot for quite some time. Many of you may recognize his name because it appears in a handful of Poirot episodes. That, of course, would be the David Suchet, Agatha Christie's Poirot series. Um, He also created Midsummer Murders. He also created Foil's War, in addition to Collision, Injustice, and New Blood. And then as an author, he has a longstanding series of young adult novels. That would be the Alex Ryder series. He's also written other children's novels. And in addition to his adult mystery series, he's just written a ton of other stuff. But perhaps most notably, he's written some continuation novels for both the James Bond franchise and the Sherlock Holmes franchise. So there are many, many different ways that he may already be a part of your life. If he's not, we are so thrilled to introduce him now. And let's get right to it. So we had such a good time talking with Anthony Horowitz a year ago in the fall of 2020. Uh, we decided we had to have him on again. Uh, back then, he had just published Moonflower Murders, which was the second book in his Susan Ryland mystery series. This year, ever the prolific uh, author, he's out with the third book in his Hawthorne series, in which he himself features as the Watson or Hastings, if you prefer, and you probably do prefer Hastings, uh, to his fictional detective, Daniel Hawthorne. And this one is called A Line to Kill. And we also very nearly crossed paths with him just a few days ago as we were all uh, hosting events at the same literary festival, uh, festival's about to become very important here. That festival being the International Agatha Christie Festival, which uh, is, as we speak, still taking uh, place in Turkey. And, you know, Anthony was able to make it in person and we had to do it via video. So, you know, much to our disappointment because obviously we also wanted to do this interview in person as well. And yeah, as Catherine just mentioned, uh, I think festivals is actually an excellent place to start the conversation since A Line to Kill is in fact set at a literary festival and how. Uh, The festival is not in Torquay. It's actually a bit farther south, believe it or not, uh, in the Channel Island of Alderney. And first off, Anthony, I mean, do you like literary festivals as much as you seem to in the book? Because I'm not going to make a habit in this interview. Don't be alarmed of quoting you at length. But given that we were all just at a festival, I was very much struck by this passage in which you wax quite eloquent about uh, the joy of literary festivals. And I'll just read it out for you. 
It's an incredible thought that there are more than 350 literary festivals in the UK. I've been to many of them, Appledore, Birmingham, Canterbury, Durham. It wouldn't be difficult to travel the entire country from north to south, working my way through the alphabet at the same time. I think there's something wonderful and reassuring about the idea that in the rush of modern life, people will still come together and sit for an hour in a theater, a gymnasium, or a giant tent, simply out of a love of books and reading. There's a sort of innocence about it. Everyone is so friendly, and I've hardly ever met a writer, no matter how big a bestseller, who's been difficult or standoffish. On the contrary, many of them have become good friends. Somehow, when I think of literary festivals, even Hey on Why, where this is very rarely the case, the sun is always shining. <laughs> is that love real? Uh, I was going to say, I couldn't put it better myself, Kemp, when you were that, <laughs> I realized, actually, I did put it that way myself. Yeah, it's totally real. I mean, you know, literary festivals are joyous events and and they do get that feeling of summer and sunshine particularly now actually in covid when marquees seem to be the order of the of the case i'm actually talking to you at this very moment from a little place in devonshire called appledore um appledore is known to me because it's the setting of one of my books moonflower murders the little village of Tawley on the water is based on appledore and i came to this festival about three or four years ago and this you know if you could look out the window you'd be seeing um an, an estuary and the sunshine and beaches and ice cream vans and sailing boats and multicolored cottages. It's a beautiful place to come. So that's the first part of a literary festival, is going to parts of the country which I might not otherwise see and which I which I love. The second part, of course, is meeting people who have the same love of books that I have. And better still, they love my books. They wouldn't come, you know, they don't come to my, to my talks to throw things at me. They come because they actually like my books. And you've got to remember that the life of a writer is a very isolated one. I spend hundreds and hundreds of hours in a room by myself in London normally. And it's it's very rare to actually meet the people who support my living and, and who like my books and who give me the inspiration to continue. So that is also what a festival does for me. But those comments that you read out from the book are true, I think, in a larger sense. You know, during COVID, people have discovered the joy and the and the escape uh, and the sanity of reading and of literature and of stories, particularly mysteries, incidentally. And um, and a celebration of that is is now all the more potent, uh, I think, in you know, in these COVID days. Yeah, I mean, I think that we uh, might have talked about this on our last conversation last fall, uh, but you know, one of the things that we've heard from booksellers that we know um, is that the thing that is most in demand are books like yours and like Agatha Christie's. And that is, I think, what really, really served and continues to serve because let's be honest, this is not quite over here. Um, you know, people quite well uh, during times of trouble. And so I think it's a lovely, lovely thing to have people united over that fact. Well, I think, Catherine, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there, there was a 5% in the United Kingdom last year, there was a 5% rise in the sale of books, more than 2 million books. Well, no, more than wow. 20 million books were sold. More than 20 million books were sold, a, a spike of 5%. And murder mystery was at the top of that spike. And you have to ask yourself why. And I have a theory, which I may have put into one of my <laughs> books, which is that we live in a world now which is so uncertain 
You know, we've, we've just been through COVID and we're still going through it. And we don't even really know how it began or when it's going to end. Um, we don't really know now. There are many people in America and England who, um, you know, are, are, are deeply anxious about the cures, about the vaccine, about the truth, about government, whatever. And, and we have 24-hour news that bombard us with different messages all the time. And in my view, a murder mystery novel provides that sort of, security and comfort you don't find very easily these days in modern life. In a, in a murder mystery, you start with a community that is troubled. Somebody has committed a terrible crime. Somebody has been killed. Everybody is a suspect. Nobody knows the truth. But by the end of a murder mystery, what has happened? Every I has been dotted. Every T has been crossed. Now we know who the killer was. The killer has been apprehended. There aren't going to be any more murders. The community can knit itself back together again. The detective has come. He now leaves, but he leaves behind him peace and serenity and security. And I think that's the reason why at this time murder mystery has a real value. And particularly, I should add to that, murder mystery, which is, as you correctly said, like Agatha Christie, where it is delicate and civilized, where it's not about blood spatter and violence and, and horrible things happening. There is a sort of a delicacy, a gentleness about it. And even a sort of, in my book, certainly, a sort of a humor, a lightheartedness. These are all things we need. Yeah. I mean, I would thank you for confirming a point that we've been making for five years on this podcast, <laughs> which is that that is the reason that people do turn in troubled times to um, to mysteries, um, because I think that it's two things, right? It's um, exactly what you said, but more than that, it's order, right? Because if you don't have control over your daily life, right, you can now, at the end of a book, there's order. Order is restored, um, so there's a restorative sense at the end of a mystery novel. Might not be peaceful. I mean, I don't know that Christie, I mean, many of Christie's end with like quite a bit of despair, frankly, but it, there's order restored. And, you know, I would say, and, you know, not to spoil anything, but your novel doesn't actually end in peacefulness this time about. Um, but there is, there's order and reason involved. And I think that that yeah. is what is significant. And there is agency for the reader because the reader can follow along, find the clues and feel as though they are involved in the process of restoring that order. That's right. I mean, it's, it isn't necessarily about peacefulness. It's about questions answered. It's about knowing, right. it's about truth. All fiction is about truth. And I think it is really interesting that in this 21st century world of ours, truth can only be found sometimes in fiction. In real life, it eludes us. Right. So, no, I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think to to get absolute answers and to have a sort of perfect knowledge about something, I know absolutely everything that needs to be known, and that is important about this conundrum. And now that I'm closing the book, my my knowledge is is absolute and complete, and that is so satisfying, especially in the bewildering times um, in which we live. But yes, but I think it's. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a peaceful ending. It also doesn't necessarily mean that I think every I has been dotted and every T has been crossed because even in this very book, um, and I, I think I'll, I'll just transition into asking you about the Hawthorne series specifically, you know, there's an ongoing mystery, almost a series long mystery in your book, which I think is the mystery of Hawthorne himself. And 
what you're doing is a very, I think it is a very Watson as to Holmes or Hastings as to Poirot kind of motif where you have this sidekick chronicler who's writing the books and you're really leaning into that because you yourself are an established writer and you are using your real name, even though this is technically a fictional version of yourself narrating these these stories, but you're putting yourself in that place and you're trying to figure out who is this person? Who is Hawthorne? He has some mysteries in his past. It's not totally clear to you either, you know, the type of person that he is and what he's done. And you end this book um, quite strikingly, I thought, on a note of mystery as to him. And I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how you're going to tease that out in future books, because given how it ends, I, I feel like there have to be future books that you're planning. There's a lot to unpick in what you've just said, Captain. Uh, <laughs> so let's start with the future books. I'm seeing about 10 or 11 of these books, approximately. Wow. I don't know quite how many, but quite a lot of them. Uh, and they will end with the resolution, the solution as to what has made uh, Hawthorne into this rather difficult and troubled human being, which he uh, undoubtedly is. Um, and I sort of, as I sit here now talking to you, know about 65, 70% of the answer to that very question. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but what I'm doing in these books is what I do in all the books that I've written, and certainly in the series books I've written. Take Alex Ryder, for example, where I'm now on to book 14 in the series. Nightshade was the last one, and that was the 14th. With every book that I have written about Alex Ryder, I've learned a little bit more about him. I haven't exactly searched for it, but the more you write about a character, the more... Um, his or her background begins to bubble up and you begin to meet other relatives. I mean, in one of the Alex Ryder books, I met his godfather. In another one, you know, we learned the truth about his parents and how they died. This is just what happens. This is about writing. Writing is all about not just invention, but it's reinvention and and building on what you've invented so your character becomes ever richer, ever deeper. And that's what's happening with Hawthorne too, except in a slightly different way, because I'm not just writing him. I'm a character in the book investigating him and trying to find out from people who know him the truth about his background. Uh, the other thing that I'm doing, of course, is, is by understanding him and by getting to the core of what makes him so disagreeable in so many, more, so many ways, I am trying to like him more. And this is the most important thing of all. Watson never actually tries to find out more about Holmes. Mm. He never asks questions in the stories of the novels like, who were your parents? Did you have a brother or a sister? Where were you brought up? These things just don't occur to him. He narrates only the stories. But I am interested in these things because I know that if I don't like Hawthorne myself, the reader won't like him either. And you cannot have a detective who is unlikable. So the quest for knowledge is also a journey to make him sympathetic and make him a, a likable character. And I think in the three books, starting with, you know, Word is Murder, Sentence is Death, Now Line to Kill, he is becoming, with every book, a little bit more likable. As I learn more about him, the book club, the strange teenager who, who is, you know, lives in the, in the apartment below him in London, um, the fact that he is married, that he has a child. Uh, you know, there's a moment in, in A Line to Kill, which I think absolutely speaks volumes for Hawthorne, which is that, you know, at a critical moment in the story, he asks to get a book signed. 
And he does it with such humility and such sort of nervousness. And of course, I've seen this in, in, you know, in book festivals and in the street where people have asked me to sign a book. And I do it myself when I go to another writer and ask to have a book done. I always say, look, I, I hate to ask you this. I know it's embarrassing, but could you possibly? And I suddenly become a bit like a child. Hawthorne does that too. And mm-hmm. in that moment, I think his humanity begins to shine through. I think that the, um, the moment at which he does it in this book is actually striking. And that's the, it's really the kicker of this. And so I definitely hugely appreciated that, Anthony. I I thought it was lovely, actually. And I thought it was lovely, actually, quite early on when they first got to the festival, that he actually does attend the events. You know, Two things to say to that, forgive me for jumping in. The first is, of course, I had to be very careful how I describe that moment without giving too much away in the plot. But you are 100% correct. It's <laughs> such an unexpected moment to ask for a dedication. Yes. Of, what is going on in this guy's head that he can, can do that? So that was the first thing to say about it. And the second point you were making, I'm sorry, I've now forgotten what it was, the second point, because I was so excited, I'd rather jumped in, forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely all right. We'd rather listen to you than to me anyway. But um, no, I was going to say that I think that when they just arrive at the festival and um, your fictional self kind of naps and hides away in the hotel room and he's actually out and looking at everything and going to the talks and um very heavily involved i mean clearly that's partially his investigative nature taking over but the fact that he pays such close attention in such a sensitive way is like another reveal of character i think well the big joke of a literary festival is is that when I'm invited to Alderney to, to the Lit Fest, I think that I'm finally going to have the upper hand over Hawthorne because I'm the writer. I've done loads and loads of Lit Fests in my time and I'm very used to speaking to the public about books. It's his first time. To, so, so for the first time, I believe the spotlight is going to be on me. But of course, the exact opposite happens. When we finally get on the stage together, no one even asks me a single question. All they want to do is talk to Hawthorne. He's the one who's who everybody's interested in. The publishers want to meet him. They don't give, they don't really care about me at all. Um, and and there's this sort of, you know, this sort of, I'm not just hiding in my room, I'm skulking in sort of, you know, in in, in, in shock and dismay at the way things have turned out. But, but one of the chapters that I most enjoyed writing was the chapter where we are together on the stage and Hawthorne is being asked questions that I've tried to ask him in the course of our relationship, but he's never answered, which is, you know, what is it like to be a detective? Why do you do your job? What is important to you in this? And it took me a very, very long time when I was writing the book to come up with the answers that he would give. Mm. Not just because, you know, I wasn't sure what those answers were. I also wasn't sure if he would give them. And if you think about it, it's 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 very rare for a detective. Think of Poirot or Miss Marple or, or, or Holmes or, or Whimsy or any of them to actually explain why they like being a detective, what it is about the job that they like. And here was an opportunity to do just that. Well, I, I love that scene, too, because it to me, it really rang true that that is the forum in this public way with lots of people stuffed into a room, um, you know, and this kind of official procedure surrounding it. Yeah. Maybe someone like Hawthorne might actually in that moment, give a real answer, which would be easier than doing it 
within, you know, the, the intimate context of talking face to face to you alone. And you have many moments in all three of these books and, and very much in the third book where, Anthony Horowitz, the narrator, is trying to get Hawthorne to open up and to confide. And he just, it's not easy for him and he doesn't want to. And I loved that scene because I believed it. I believed that he actually would give answers there because it's kind of expected of him. And he's not just going to sit there and be monosyllabic and surly on stage because that's kind of embarrassing. Um, and the answers are really interesting. Um, and it, it helps. I, th- I think it's it's funny now that I know that you're planning on doing 10 to 11 of these books. It makes sense because I think you are spinning out the mystery of Daniel Hawthorne quite well. And I think you can feel that in this book because we do get some answers, but we're not, there's no finality to them. I didn't finish this book feeling like, okay, now I know who he is. It's one of those things where you got more answers that just led to even more questions. And um, that's, um, I assume, what you wanted to do, (laughs) because you have a lot more books in which to continue to solve the mystery of Hawthorne. You know, as you speak, I think of, I remember watching Lost on television of all those seasons, and every season you seemed to get more answers to the questions, but in the end it actually led nowhere, and and by the (laughs) final season, the entire world was thoroughly annoyed with J.J. Abrams. And I can assure you that that is not what is going to happen in these books. There is a finite answer to who Hawthorne is and what made him as difficult he is. I sort of, as I say, know most of that answer, or a lot of it, and I will eventually, in due course, come to come to to, to a full conclusion. You might like to know that actually I am feeding more clues into the book than I had intended. I wasn't originally going to delve quite so hard into it, uh, but but for some reason I find that it becomes it's it's sort of it's it's more entertaining. I think the the more clues there are, the more events, the more incidents. You know, in book number two, it was a chance meeting in a pub that suddenly you know exposes a whole side to this man that I was completely puzzled by. And in book three, now there's you know there is a big development that tells us quite a bit about you know at least where to look for the origins. And in book four, because of what's happened in book three, I will be looking and I will perhaps find yet more stuff. I mean, you know, and there are, there are characters we're going to meet. His wife is going to turn up in one of the books and his son. I'm really, really looking forward to having a book in which for some reason the son is part of the investigation and sort of, you know, I, I can see myself almost babysitting this this 13-year-old kid that, that sort of somehow turned up in the, in the story. Uh, and there's a brother that, you know, I've already mentioned, but he has a, a brother who has... Uh, who has a, who's a real estate agent and who has given him the place where he lives. And I'm going to meet that brother quite soon. So, you know, it is all sort of planned in my head. There's at the same time, I'm already thinking up the next murder and the next uh, scenario. And I have actually three books already pretty much pre-planned, which are, which the murders are at least there and some of the characters are there. And, um, you know, and I, I relish it. I'm, lo- I'm loving writing these books. That's a, a funny thing about it is that when I was first asked to do a, a murder mystery series by my publishers, I was quite nervous that having done so much crime fiction in my life, starting with Agatha Christie's Poirot, I'd be bored by it, but I wouldn't enjoy it. The exact opposite is true. I'm loving writing these books. That's fantastic. No, it's it's so interesting to hear. And also, I'm very happy to learn that it's not going to turn out that they were in some sort of purgatory or limbo all this time. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in purgatory working with, with Hawthorne, but everyone else, I think not. <laughs> well, I, I can't resist asking then, um, and, you know, feel free to decline to answer this, but um, in the first book, uh, the first Hawthorne book, you mentioned that 
you had um, met him when he was consulting, I believe, on Injustice, right? The, that is correct. Which, which is an actual <laughs> miniseries that you created and, and produced. I mean, this does exist in, in, and I assume that you have worked with police consultants uh, for the various series that you've done. Is Hawthorne based on any one person more than any other, or is he really just you know, a fictional construct that you couldn't really pinpoint in any way. In Injustice, the six-part TV series starring James Purfoy that I wrote some years ago, I created a character of a police uh, inspector detective. Um, I forget what his name now was. It was maybe Wenborn, and that might give you a clue, Wenborn Hawthorne. Um, and Wenborn was a, was a really successful creation. I was very, very happy with his character. He was brilliantly played, and I do credit him in the first book by an actor called Charlie Creed Miles, a British actor, probably not that well-known in America, but he has got a very, very distinguished acting career behind him and has done many, many great parts, including playing this detective. And he made the character very special. And I made probably the biggest mistake of my life because in, uh, this is a spoiler coming up, I fear for anybody who plans to watch Injustice, um, I killed him. He dies in the course of this show. And so I created a character I couldn't then use again. So when it came to creating Hawthorne, I went back to the origins of Wenborn in the mm. Injustice. And I took the performance by Charlie Creed Miles. That character was based on a detective whom I met when I was working on that show and who helped me with some of the sort of technical advice for, for, for the scenes that I was writing. So he was an amalgam of a real character, the fake character or the fictitious character based on the real character and the performance by this actor. It's the three that came together to create Daniel Hawthorne. Does Instead, that... Daniel Hawthorne, would, who is in the room next door, would be very angry to hear me saying this because he would... <laughs> Tell you that actually he is his own character and has got nothing to do with me, but that's a, that's another issue. I mean, I well, have to deal. With. Well, I was saying when we were you know when we were planning to do, to do this interview, I did request that uh, we do this interview with the two of you. So we are a little miffed that Daniel Hawthorne well, wasn't able. I to apologize. Hawthorne never ever speaks uh, except at Albany where he did do that one thing. There is a short story I wrote in one of the books. There's a sort of extra material in which a journalist does meet Hawthorne, and I can tell you it doesn't go well. I don't think that Hawthorne would do a podcast. I don't think that's his uh, cup of tea. Well, you might be surprised. I mean, <laughs> you know, even if you say that to me, it makes me think, wow, that's an interesting idea for another book. Hawthorne invited to do a podcast. And of course, I'm not. Um, that's interesting. That's quite fun. Yeah, that might well happen. Um, and you might, therefore, because of my 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 tendency to mix um, reality and fiction together, because I do love to bring the walls down, and you know that in in the books, lots of well known people have turned up as absolutely. So it could well be that uh, uh, Hawthorne does a podcast with you and Catherine, and you can both, therefore, uh, with your permission, be characters in the book. I'm not oh saying my, I'm not going to speak for Catherine. You have my total full, permission, wholehearted permission. <laughs> it's a thought. It's a thought. You know, it's, <laughs> when I get an idea like that, I, I think I the only way he would do a podcast is if there was a reason for it. You know, he would use the podcast in some way to get at right. the truth. You know, he is that sort of person. Uh, well, I would like to suggest that we also might be more tempting to him because we are not a true crime podcast we are technically a literary podcast so <laughs> he um he might have fewer hesitations to use us 
He doesn't like being called fictitious, that's for sure. Uh, so I mean, it might work against you. I mean, in one of the books, somebody said he was a you know a fictitious character, and he got very. Uh, it's actually in the last book, in A Line to Kill, they're talking about his book being the new book being fiction, and he says, "No, no, it's true crime." Uh, <laughs> does the does the real detective know, by the way, that he is in any way responsible for, for the origins at all? Have you ever had a conversation? With I him? think not. No. I mean, first no. of all, I don't. I, I when I'm creating characters, I'm very careful not to, as it were, steal from people. Not sure. to, not to, um, you know, to to make parodies of them or jokes out of them or, or exaggerate things or anything of that sort of stuff. I think it can be quite offensive to do that. So I, so I, I would hope that he wouldn't recognize himself in the characters. I say he is a composite of different things. Well, I'm just going to say it again. If we can rec- if we ever recognize ourselves, just <laughs> believe me, we will be delighted. So <laughs> um, I would, I will let you know first. It is just a thought. It's popped into my head now. I'm going to start thinking tonight about how can I use that? That's an interesting <laughs> Um, I podcast is, is a great it's just a it's a great title in there the word podcast just a, just a pod you know the whole <laughs> I'm gonna start thinking about that now you know I've already it. said I have already said that one of my things I've been thinking about during COVID is how to do a murder mystery in which in a zoom call like we're having now mm-hmm. I um murder Catherine even though we're all talking together and we're in different parts of the world mm. um, how do you how do you get one character in one little window on the screen and let's say there are 12 characters in total to somehow cross diagonally and murder during the call. Right. During the call. Right. Somebody in the bottom left-hand corner. It's a puzzle that's been sort of bugging me now for quite a long time. And that might be one of the books later on. Oh, that well, would, I, that would I do Zoom. How about that oh. for a time? Slightly offended that I would be the victim and not Kemper, <laughs> but um, but but um, it's only, it's yeah. only because it was only because your picture was bigger on the screen at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably, probably electrocution. Wouldn't that be? No, no, no. It has to be cleverer than that. It has to be uh, the whole thing has to be in some way faked. So that everything I'm saying is possibly pre-recorded and that might work. Mm. Or I don't know. I mean, the trouble is that you get ideas like this as a crime writer and it's a sort of a neat, smiley idea. But when you come up with the solutions, it's somebody impersonating me. I mean, Agatha Christie would do that very happily um, and has done it many, many times. Plenty of ways. In a 21st century setting in a Zoom call, would anybody believe that an actor could play me and so I'm I'm next door to you? And then you've got to ask, why have I done it? And it seems a little bit elaborate, sort of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one way. A pre-recording is another way. Um, I don't know. I, I'll find it, but 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 it's, it hasn't come yet. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very much looking forward to being a murder victim. Apparently, <laughs> I'm not making any promises. I'm just saying it is a possibility that has come to my as a result of this conversation. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Do you smell that in the air, Kemper? The sharp tang of freshly fallen leaves, the spicy sweet aroma of apple cider, the mouth-watering redolence of pumpkin spice latte? Yes, you know, that's exactly what I was referring to. Well, how could it not be, Catherine? Fall is upon us, and how? And what better way to celebrate the fall than with your best fiend? Or in my case, soul fiend, obviously. Battling the slugs and solving ingenious puzzles together. I couldn't agree more, Catherine. You know, the array of fiends in our digital arsenal is like the many colored leaves 
leaves fluttering to the ground. Okay, we get it. You love fall, and we love best fiends. Both true. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I did want to ask you about Alderney uh, specifically. Have you been, I mean, it certainly reads as though you've been there. I assume that you've been there. There's, there's a ton of specificity, uh, you know, as to the setting. Have you attended a literary festival on the island? About three years ago, two teenage boys wrote to me from Alderney to invite me to come to their school. And they wrote me the sweetest letter I've ever had. It said, if you come to Alderney, you'll love it here. There are Romans, Roman, blue telephone boxes, and no chips on Fridays. And that was so sweet. I said, well, why not? You know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Those kids have stuck their neck out. I will go. So I went to Albany and I gave a couple of talks in the cinema, the same cinema that I uh, visit in the um, movie theater, I should say, uh, which I visit in this book and went to all the places that I describe in the book and fell in love with Albany. I mean, it is the most extraordinary island. It's like, I've never been anywhere quite like it. I had the most wonderful long weekend there and thought when I was there, as soon as somebody said to me, there's never been a murder on this island, mm. uh, which I was told almost the moment I landed, uh, I knew I was going to make, I was going to change that. That was mm-hmm. going to be changed. So um, three years later, I sat down to write a line to kill. And very sadly, I couldn't go back to the island uh, to write it. I would normally have rented a house on the island for maybe a month or two and really immersed myself in the atmosphere, the light, the people, the food, all the rest of it. But COVID had closed the island down completely. So I had to just use the notes I'd made, the photographs I'd taken, the memories I had, plus, of course, a bit of help from the internet, from Google, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that was how I did it. But yes, you're quite right. I had certainly visited the place. I don't think I've ever written. There, there are a few exceptions, but broadly speaking, I'd say about 90% of the places in my books I have at one time or another visited. Alex Ryder goes into space in, Alex, in, in Archangel, and I wasn't able to do that. But, you know, otherwise, if I can go there, I do. Yeah. Um, can I ask a question? I think uh, primarily for American listeners, because I had to look up the history of the Channel Islands um, during the Second World War, because it, you know, it's brought up multiple times in your novel. Is I thought I was pretty familiar with the history of Britain during the Second World War, and I had not been familiar with the fact that there were concentration camps. And I didn't know if that is something that is very common knowledge in Britain or how it's talked about, um, because certainly it's not in the United States. I had no clue. I didn't didn't either. I'm I'm so fascinated to hear you say that. And of course, all over the world, there are people who don't know the truth, which is that in, in the war, all the Channel Islands were invaded by the Nazis. So Jersey, Guernsey, and Alderney were all under German occupation. And horrors did take place on all those islands. For example, in Jersey, they built a huge hospital. And the plan was that when they invaded Britain, all the um, wounded Germans would be admitted to this huge hospital they built. Um, But they used slave labor to build it, Russians, Estonians, and Jews. And as these 
poor people died, they were simply buried inside the walls of this hospital. So it's a vast subterranean hospital with bodies in the walls. It was never, ever used um, and such. But that is just one story. On Alderney, there wasn't one, there were three labour camps. Um, Silt is the most famous of them. And even to this day, it is questioned how many people actually died uh, on the island during the war. The lowest estimate is 700. The highest estimate is into the thousands. And as I describe in the book, the area called Longest Common is a major, massive graveyard of unidentified bodies. And I think that it's fair to say that the people who live in Alderney are a little shy of talking about this history. I think that, you know, they can't be blamed for it. They were, I think almost all of them were evacuated before the Germans arrived. But nonetheless, it is a sort of a, a blot on the landscape in the very worst sort of way. And there is a monument to silt there. I visited it, just the walls of the, the, the two pillars of the what had been the entrance gate is still there. And of course, it's very much a part of my book. Um, and it was, I have to say, one of the most difficult parts of the book to write, because I've talked about the fact that this is a an entertainment, it is lighthearted, it is warm and funny. And putting a Nazi concentration camp in the middle of all that does change the tone a bit. Um, so, so I had to be careful with it, but, but it is very much part of the island history. And in a way, I'm very glad if this book does bring that to the attention of the world, because it is part of history, but has been to a certain extent forgotten. That's fast. It's fascinating to me. I know a lot of people, um, obviously we're in California, and I know a lot of people will drive up to Mammoth, which is the ski mountain in Northern California, right? And if you go up the sort of Death Valley side, you pass Manzanar. And Manzanar was the like massive Japanese internment camp. And people don't know that. People who live in California will gloss over that. And so I, especially because so many Californians are transplants, so they just don't know that that exists there. And so reading this, I mean, first of all, I was fascinated. I did a Google rabbit hole, you know, dive. Well, tunnels are probably not actually the best uh, thing to say with regards to this. But um, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was fascinating that I had no idea. And well, so I'm, the people much nearer to the to Alderney than America have no idea either. And um, you know, in England, there are a lot of people who have forgotten the um forgotten the uh um you know recent history. And it's it's not you know, it's not my job to to keep that alive, but it is certainly part of the job of literature broadly, I think, to to remember and to and to treat with you know, I worked on a show called Foil's War for 16 years, which was telling untold stories of 1940 to 47, week after week after week. Uh, and I'm very proud of what we did in that show. Um, literature must keep these memories alive and, and help to remind us of where we've been. It's another job for literature oh, to do. Of course. No. I mean, I, I um, one of my favorite books of all time is Austerlitz by W.G. Zabald. And obviously it's about the kinder transport to some extent because the main character has ended up in Wales. Um, but, you know, it's also about Theresien Schott. And, you know, there's like a lot of that sort of remember, well, it's an entire book about memory and remembrance of what happened. And so, I mean, I do think it's important to keep that in mind, especially because we're in troubled times now too. So like the more that you like can 
use literature as a way to remind people of things that happened. I think it's terrific. And even though this book is charming um, and very funny in points um, and diverting <laughs> and diverting and entertaining, I actually like really took great value out of learning that, Anthony. Well, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, so thank you for that. But as I say, you know, it is a it is a small part of the book. But yeah, but you know, when I went to Alderney, when I'm when I'm thinking about books and I'm traveling, you know, I, I pick up local stories. You know, that power line that I describe in the book, the whole island is is fighting uh, the two community. The community has been mm-hmm. divided into two halves because of a power line which is being taken from France to to Great Britain, and it's going to cut through the island, and it's going to you know destroy the landscape, and yet at the same time it's going to bring in money and wealth, etc. And the island is divided as to whether have it. All that's true. That is actually happening. The line is not called NAB, which is what I call it, Normandy, Alderney, Britain. The actual line is called FAB, which is France, Alderney, Britain. I I changed the name simply because I didn't want to get into trouble legally or otherwise, uh, or to upset anybody. But but you know, you 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 the job of the writer, or my job, or my the, my pleasure rather, is that when I come to a community, particularly if I have decided to write about it, is that the stories are always there, and the true stories are the ones that really will work in a sort of a murder mystery. Um, and and as soon as I heard the, the, about the NAB line, I thought about Agatha Christie, really. I thought that was exactly the sort of detail that she would have picked up if she had come there, and she would have used it very much as sort of the background to a, to a mystery if she had written one. It's great. It's a great motivation, potential motivation, not going to spoil anything, um, for murder. And it did strike me as being Christie-esque, and that also sent me to the web. Like Catherine, I went down a Wikipedia slash Google rabbit hole on Alderney itself. And then also that controversy, because I was saying, did he just make that up completely? Or I was, because it sounds so real. I was like, I'll bet this is actually happening. And yes, it, it very much is. It is a gift. I mean, it's a gift because, you know, a power line divides people. Uh, people benefit from it or they don't benefet from it. They make money or they lose money. Uh, they, they, they're for it, they're against it. Tempers get raised. Um, people want to stop it. And Charles Le Mazurier, the main character, who is sort of, you know, spearheading this thing, you know, puts himself into danger in actually just the same way as Sir Magnus Pye in, Mag- in Magpie Murders, who wants to develop land in the village. You know, this, mm-hmm. especially in England, in a small country on Alderney, a tiny island, you know, disruption, change, modernity, uh, digging up the land, spoiling things, will get people's passions racing. And that might lead, especially in my world, to murder. Absolutely. Well, um, I mean, it's a, the Agatha Christie version is always real estate developments, right? Yeah. That's usually like one of the major changes that uh, seems to happen. She has like this great obsession with real estate and with a changing landscape, especially like in a place like, for example, St. Mary Mead. And and that's what's at the heart of it, right? Because it's people's property that's going to be destroyed by these power lines. So it is it is sort of about real estate, the that whole controversy, because you know people have views and they don't want them to be spoiled. And you know when you live on an island with the uh, you know the views that Alderney has, that obviously you know you would believe that that's very important to people, and they might be willing to kill to preserve. I think it. it's also <laughs> about power and powerlessness. I think Mm. there is no feeling worse in the world when you lose control of your own life, where somebody, maybe someone you've never met, 
can change your life for reasons you don't fully understand. Now, that sense of helplessness can lead to anger, which can lead to passion, which can lead to murder. And I completely get it. You know, I was, when I was talking at the Agatha Christie Festival, I was, I was saying a theory I have, which is that Agatha Christie's murderers are often quite sympathetic. Not all of them, some of them are horrible, but there are quite a few of them who actually, when you think about it, you at least understand what they've done. I mean, after all, in one or two of the books, Poirot actually lets the killer go free or, 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 or take their own life to avoid prosecution. Um, so he himself occasionally understands the nature of the killer and the motivation for it. And although obviously justice must prevail and murder is never right, it isn't the case that every murderer on this planet has always been a monster. And that's something I remember when I'm writing a murder mystery, which is that you um, or Catherine or I, in a, in the, given the certain set of circumstances and with bad luck or with just bad judgment, could all too easily become a killer. Anybody can. And I think that's also part of the interest in writing murder mystery stories. We're not writing about freaks or monsters. Well, you actually precipitated my question. I was literally going to quote from from the book because you do make that statement about Agatha Christie in the course of the book. We should also acknowledge, by the way, we are speaking on the birthday of Agatha Christie. It is September 15th. That that is absolutely correct. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you say, if you read Agatha Christie, you may have noticed that every single one of her killers manages to elicit a modicum of sympathy. You may not have- every one of them. I mean, I've been reading a lot of the books recently and there are some who are really- Beyond the pale. I mean, you know, right, or- right, my arch nemesis. Kemper <laughs> <laughs> um, knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> well, and and you qualify that too, where you you go on and you say you may not approve of what they've done, but you understand it. And I do think, without spoiling anything, I mean, there, you know, when we do figure out who done it, there is an element of sympathy or pity involved. I mean, so is, is that? I mean, is that important to you? Do you feel that you need that uh, as to every murderer who's revealed in a book? What I want is shades of gray. I don't want everything to be obviously black or white. I mean, when I was doing Foil's War, the very first episode of Foil's War, I remember that at the end of the show, Foil has identified the killer who happens to be working in a very important role in the war effort. And the killer says to Foil, if you arrest me, I'll be hanged. Nobody benefits. What I've done, I've already done, but but the war effort will be badly damaged because everybody knows that my work is important. And Foyle, therefore, has a moral dilemma. Does he proceed with, with law and justice and have this person hanged, or does he just stay quiet, if only for five years, so that this person can help with the war effort? Uh, and there were other episodes that had exactly the same moral uh, problem uh, for the detective. Now, A Line to Kill presents exactly the same. We talked earlier about the chapter in which Hawthorne describes what it is to be a detective and why he wants to be a detective and what justice means. And that does have a payoff in A Line to Kill when he gets to the end of the book and the killer has been identified. And the question is asked, what good will it do to have this killer arrested? Uh, and and he has to come up with an answer. And again, when I was thinking about that and formulating it, I found that fascinating. His 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 the way he tackles the moral ambiguity of it, and the way he comes to an answer which absolutely satisfies him, and of which there can be no equivocation. That, mm-hmm. to me, is 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 the is the core, the the the, the, the sort of the, the serious heart of this otherwise sort of quite lighthearted rump. Well, any, well sorry, go ahead, Catherine. Um. 
it struck me as a super, shall we say, Poirotian ending. Temper, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Totally. Comp- I'm glad that you agree because I read it and was like, oh, this is this is a Poirot ending. And, um, you know, I think that we... We talk about, and we we did a lecture at Cambridge some time ago about the difference between, um, you know, types of justice and retribution versus reparative justice and how Christie does a pretty good job usually at striking a balance there. I believe we talked at some length about tribunals, mm-hmm. if memory serves, um, mm-hmm. but... Uh, Reading this, it's doing a very similar thing. It's striking a very strong balance between types of justice. And I found that also really interesting and, you know, um, likable. It may, it, that in itself, what Hawthorne ends up doing, even though your fictional self kind of seems a little iffy on his choices, um, he, I think probably morally is doing exactly the right thing and it ends up in exactly sort of the right way. And again, it just was so reminiscent of Poirot. Well, I was thinking of Poirot at that time. I mean, Orient Express, I suppose, was sort of uppermost in my mind, but there are other stories too, where he faces that same sort of, you know, quandary. But what I think this conversation is doing is, 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 reminding me of something I think we talked about the last time we spoke, which is my belief that murder mysteries and whodunits are entertainments and they are lighthearted and they are puzzles, but they can also be something more. I think that it is possible to write these sorts of stories in a way that leaves the reader with something to think about afterwards and something, you know, and and that was what I was always doing in Foyle's War, which was trying mm-hmm. to talk about the history of the war and about the sort of, you know, morality of what was happening uh, at the same time as just telling stories with clues and suspects and red herrings and all the rest of it. And that's what I'm trying to do now with Hawthorne as well. But the books, you know, I'm not making huge claims for them. People aren't going to be up into the small hours discussing the, the finer points of the last chapter. But just as we have been talking now, I hope that I am at least throwing something out there that, that it is, if you like, a sort of an added value to the sort of the basic conundrum, the riddle of the book. No, I, I I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, it, it, his answer, he's sort of buying into the, the system. Also, it reminded me, I actually went to law school and in law school, from the beginning, you have to grapple with, well, you know, what do lawyers do and the individual case versus the greater system of justice as a whole. And, you know, for example, if you're going to uh, be a defense lawyer, you're going to tr- advocate, um, you know, as much as you can for your client, even if, for example, your client is guilty. And that's not necessarily a question that you ask. And it's important that the people who do those jobs are people who have bought into the system and who are going to uphold that system and then have other people advocating just as vigorously and vehemently on the other side and who aren't going to have those doubts in the individual case to say, ooh, but I actually know that this one's guilty, so maybe I should take a step back. That's not, and Hawthorne is similar. He's, he's like, well, my job is this, and then that's it. And you could say, well, that's disappointing, but actually it's, there's, you know, there, there's, I think, um, a lot to admire in what his stance is, and it's why he's so effective. 
Kemper, it's so funny you should raise that because, you know, we were talking about Injustice, this TV show which actually gave birth to Hawthorne, and that began with me talking to a barrister and raising exactly the questions you've just asked. The question I asked him was, what do you do if you know the person you're defending is guilty? How do you live with yourself? And, and then I said to him, what would you do if you defend somebody and you get them off and they are found to be not guilty, and then you get evidence that says that actually you were wrong all the time and they were guilty? Hmm. What do you do then? And these sorts of questions, which I'm sure you confronted in, in law school and which were, you know, batted away as being, you know, just, just, you know, just, just almost silly, to, too silly, provided me with the inspiration for a six-part drama, which is where Hawthorne begins. These very, very interesting questions about how the law works, presumption of innocence, and the need for everybody to have a defence, even if they are clearly guilty. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it is lovely to be able, all these years later, to still be writing about these issues and these sort of am, am, ambiguities in a way that is sort of lighthearted and, I hope, entertaining. Yeah, I, I think it's not a coincidence that that's that that is, you know, the well from which Hawthorne springs. And um, and it's fascinating to think about all those issues. And Christie was very much steeped in that. I mean, so many of her books, Ordeal by Innocence is the one where I think it's comes to the fore most obviously, just the grappling with issues of justice. And for that reason, it was one of her favorite books because she just she wanted to write a book where it's a meditation almost on on a lot of those issues. Um, and that doesn't take away from the entertainment value or the the diversion that she's providing. I did have to also just ask you because any Christie fan, I think, will um, uh, just note the name. There's a very prominent name, and it's actually um, one that um, comes up in Christie as well. It's Le Miserier. You already mentioned it. Charles Le Miserier is a major character. I won't say how uh, in the book. And I did a little web, slew- web sleuthing on this as well. And I think that it's actually... An, uh, an established family name within Alderney itself, but it is also very famously or infamously the one Poirot short story that was never adapted uh, within the Suchet series, the Le Miserier Inheritance. So it's one that gets bandied about in Christie's circles. And I was curious how you came up with the name and why you used it and if you were aware of that at all. I'm, I'm sorry, first of all, to disappoint you. I did not know about the Agatha Christie connection there. Although <laughs> Agatha, Christie, Agatha Christie appears regularly in my books. I have she a does. feeling there's a chapter heading in uh, uh, A Line to Kill, which is an Agatha Christie quote. Um, and certainly in Moonflower Murders, somebody is reading a book by Mary Westmacott uh, on yep. the train. Yes. Uh, and uh, you have people playing bridge here as a possible alibi. I mean, what's more Christie than that? Come on. Of course. My, you know, my cards on the table is probably my favorite Agatha Christie novel. I mean, I've always loved that book um, and, and I've often made reference to it. But Le Mazurier came out simply from the way, simply because I met somebody on the island with that name. And I used Kerapel. Dr. Querapel is another name. That's a real sort of Alderney style name. And so I was using names of people either that I'd met or that I looked up after I'd left, you know, and I was reading books about Alderney. And so I'd get a reference to a character. And I'm sure that's where Le Mazurier comes in. Uh, it's also a name as it happens of an actor I was very, very fond of in Dad's Army, which is uh, the story of the Nazis attempting to invade Britain. Uh, so it's sort of tied in with that too. Got it. Um, so I just like, uh, it's just coincidence that's sort of charming. You know, sometimes fate has its way, I suppose. Yep. 
Yeah, well, it's, I'm very happy to know it. Um, it is a very Agatha Christie-style name. And as I say, there are, I'm sure, at least a couple of Easter eggs hidden in our book that reference Agatha Christie, because, you know, I owe her so much in the, you know, in the formation of my own ideas. You know, Magpie Murders, which is, I suppose, the crime novel that, that launched my adult career, um, is so Agatha Christie, just in the very title and the, the use of a nursery rhyme, one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, etc. which is, you know, it's the one she didn't notice. You know, she she did one, two, buckle my shoe, a pocket full of rye and many, many others, but that and five little pigs you've already talked about. But that one she sort of forgot. And I, I said, well, if you didn't want that one, I'll have it. One of one of the one of the few she didn't use. And, you know, uh, you just brought up magpie murders. We have to ask. Is there uh, another one coming? <laughs> yeah, um, I will, I'll tell you two things about magpie murders. Um, to answer your first question. Uh, yes, there is. I plan to do one more in the series. Um, certainly with Susan Ryland. I'm not sure if it'll have Atticus Punt in it. The reason is, is that having done it twice, that trick of an Atticus Punt novel contains a mystery that solves a modern crime. I'm not sure we're doing it a third time will be believable or will be satisfying. So therefore my feeling is, is to do something slightly different, but still a book within a book, but this time not an Atticus Punt book within it. But the other big news is that we have filmed uh, Magpie Murders. Uh, I've adapted it as a six part TV series. It's been made by um, Britbox and by PBS in America, Master Theatre, mm -hmm. and will be on your screens, I think very soon. Um, it stars the wonderful Leslie Manville as, um, um, Susan Ryland. She's oh my God. absolutely spectacular. I love her. Part. And um, it's, it has a wonderful cast. It was directed brilliantly, I have to say, by Peter Catonio, who years ago did The Full Monty, which was a huge worldwide um, hit. And he has done the most wonderful job on, um, on, on directing this show. And I adapted the scripts. And I have to tell you, it was a nightmare job to do. It took me almost two and a half years, I think, to actually write the six scripts. They were thrown out and torn up so many times and they never seemed to be right. And finally, finally, we got there. It's very different from the book. We had to make a lot of big changes, uh, but I can't tell you how happy I am with the results. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the next time we talk, if there is a next time, and I feel we've been talking for a very long time this time, um, <laughs> um, we'll, be able to, we'll be able to see what you thought of that. Oh, I would, well, I would we're looking that. so forward. I'm so curious as to how it's going to be adapted because of the structure of the book and how it's going to play out on screen. So I cannot wait. And yeah, I love when there when there are changes made, and I I have to hope that there will be an adaptation of the Hawthorne series as well. That's well, that, you know that that is something I would love to see. I mean, there there are people. I wouldn't say interested yet, but there are people, shall we say, asking. Uh, and, you know, three books now, there'll be a fourth one next year. Um, and that sort of is about the sort of time when you can start thinking about a TV series. The big question I wonder is who will play me and will Clooney be, will Clooney be available? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hope, you know, we'll hope, you know, he's married, he's married to, um, you know, a very important uh, legal person. So, you know, perhaps he will be interested in the justice element of it all. I think it'll be perfect. He, he's just got to brush up on his, uh, his British accent, but, uh, you know, I'm sure he's up to that challenge. <laughs> 
actually, you know, the funny thing is, my wife made a movie. My wife is a, is a producer of Foyle's War. She's also the producer of Magpie Murders, uh, Jill Green. She actually produced a movie years ago called The, um, the American. And that starred George Cleaning. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. She actually has met him and worked with him. So maybe that's our way in. It's you're 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 clearly committed to this. I mean, you know, with, <laughs> right? I I I would have been worried that he would just have been too handsome in person. And uh, my wife is not handsome enough, actually. But that's that's just me talking. <laughs> I think that we've taken up enough of your time. I need to quit while we're ahead, Catherine. Before I say something, I really regret. <laughs> no, as, no. As always, as I should say again, it's been such a pleasure talking to you two guys. You are such enthusiasts, such wonderful supporters of the murder mystery genre and of Agatha Christie in particular. It is so sad that we did not have this interview in the garden together. Um, I know. You know, looking out over the river dart, or maybe we could have had it actually on the balcony where the five little pigs murder took place. Uh, oh, on the oh, battery, um, yes. The boat oh, I would have. Perilous, <laughs> the boathouse from Perilous End House. Wouldn't it have been just great? But look, there's always next time. So let's Absolutely. hope for that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time again. And we we would love to do this as many times as you'll let us. My Until pleasure. next time. Many thanks to both of you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Well, we had a great time, as we can now say we always do with Anthony Horowitz. We cannot wait to interview him for a third time, perhaps to do a post-mortem on our own appearance in a series of his. And that might be a literal postmortem because who knows, we might actually show up dead in an Anthony Horowitz novel, perhaps within the Hawthorne series. Very excited that he's planning on doing so many of those. So we have lots of great Horowitz titles in our future. In our next episode, this is so exciting. Uh, Sometimes the stars really do align. Uh, It's almost spooky, if you will, that our next novel is, oh yes, Halloween Party. And we will be putting that out just in time for this year's Halloween. So lots of spookiness to come. And if that episode just is not going to come soon enough and you want some spookiness from us right now, you could actually head on over to our Patreon account. We just dropped an episode in which we read three ghost stories, one of them by Agatha Christie, uh, two not by Agatha Christie. Uh, One was actually by Daphne du Maurier and the other by Edith Wharton. So if that wets your whistle, (laughs) uh, go on over to www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. Uh, We would, of course, love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't already done so, please do take a moment to give us a rating and or a review. We've gotten so many of them, but we could honestly always use more. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.